Marketing Made Easy, the podcast on this episode. I am now evangelical about working for yourself. Too many people make the mistake of thinking that a job is the safe option. In a job, you are at the complete mercy of management changes, industry downturns, marketplace dynamics. Whose hands would you rather place your future in? Those of a large corporate entity who at the end of the day doesn't give a shit about you, or somebody who will always have your best interests at heart, i.e. you. Now here are your hosts from Get Savvy Club, Anna Geary and Anita Baldwin. Welcome to another episode of Marketing Made Easy by the Get Savvy Club with Anna Geary and Anita Baldwin. Um, Today we're really excited because we have the lovely Cindy Gallup on as a guest. Cindy is a super, super, super interesting lady. Uh, Listen in to hear all about how she's created an apartment that ended up being in a quite um, notorious video I'm going to say that give you a bit of a clue there and um, also how she's convinced me to own my age even though I'm still not saying it right now later in the episode you're going to hear how you can win a book that she recommends as well if you're enjoying marketing made easy the podcast from get savvy club use your podcast app to rate review and subscribe hi Cindy super excited to have you with us today how are you I'm good and I'm thrilled to be here. I actually um, stumbled across you, Cindy, on Twitter. Somebody that I'm connected to on there um, shouted you out. And I I think, actually, his term was, follow this lady for badassery. So that obviously, like, made me think, oh, a badass lady. Yes, I will go and follow. So that that's how I ended up following you and then looking looking into what you're all about. And no, Anita, you really wanted to ask about the um, the apartment, didn't you? Well, I've got lo- loads of stuff I want to ask about, but mainly I was I was reading your Wikipedia page, Cindy, and you basically started on like the um, you were very successful, but it was in a corporate. Um, way wasn't it so what kind of stopped you just going fully down that corporate route and then becoming you know so innovative in the things that you've set up so basically um in 2005 I turned 45 and I had my very own personal midlife crisis in in the sense that I had always thought of 45 as kind of a midlife point Obviously, by the way, in the happy assumption, one lives to be 90, fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the couple of years running up to it, I'd gone, on one's 45th birthday is the moment when you should pause, take stock, reflect and review, where have I been, where am I going? So on February 1, 2005, I duly did that. And that was the point at which I went, oh, my God, I've just worked 16 years for the same advertising agency. Very successfully, you ran it, didn't you? And you set up um, offices in different countries for it. And so very successfully. That was Bartle, Vogel, Hegarty, BBH. And, you know, wonderful agency. Um, Love them to death. I had worked for them in London, Singapore and New York. Um, The reason I'm here in New York now is I moved here 22 years ago to start up um, the US office for BBH. And the time, honestly, had flown by. But I went, oh, my God, 16 years. Um, Maybe it's time to do something different. And then the problem was I hadn't the faintest idea what. You know, I'd always said to people, you know, I don't plan to work in advertising forever. I don't plan to work at BBH forever. But advertising is a really good industry um, to find what you want to do next because you come into contact with so many different sectors, you know, companies, brands, Um, people. And so I guess I'd always thought that my next big thing would bubble up from the ether one day. And there I was at the age of 45 and it hadn't. So vast amounts of thought and angsting ensued. And eventually I went, if I want to review every possible option open to me for what is effectively the second half of my life, 
maybe the best thing to do is to put myself on the market very publicly and go, okay, guys, here I am. What do you got? And see what comes. So I took a massive leap into the unknown. I resigned as chairman of BBH New York in the summer of 2005 without a job to go to. Mm -hmm. And it was the best bloody thing I ever did with my life. Was because it scary or... Oh, no, 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 of course it was. Yeah. But, but I am now evangelical about working for yourself because too many people make the mistake of thinking that a job is the safe option. It's not. Mm. Because in a job, you are at the complete mercy of management changes, industry downturns, marketplace dynamics. I always say, whose hands would you rather place your future in? Those of a large corporate entity who at the end of the day doesn't give a shit about you, or somebody who will always have your best interests at heart, i.e. you. Yeah, great point. Yeah. And I think um, more and more people will be thinking like that now, particularly given um, corona and all things like that. And I think it, things can turn so quickly, can't they? So to be, I think it's more about not just having one income stream anymore, not just having one job. But when you work for yourself, you can have multiple income streams. And if one goes to shit, then there's always the other two or three or whatever you've got there. So how did you come to be like doing that to then setting up, you know, you've got uh, Make Love Not Porn and then you've got If We Run The World and then, you know, the, I saw um, you on your TED talk. So all of that is like massively successful, isn't it? I imagine there was a bit of a journey to get to that. Sadly, it's not massively, massively successful. Um, so, so, so first of all, um, everything in my life and career has happened by accident. Um, I've never consciously, intentionally planned anything. And so my startups have happened by accident. Um, Make Love Not Porn was a complete accident. Came out of my direct personal experience dating younger men. And um, it, uh, it has certainly been um, extremely successful in that ever since I launched makelovenotporn.com in its original iteration 11 years ago, which was just words, uh, porn world versus real world, and since I turned that, following the extraordinary response to my TED Talk, into a business, makelovenotporn.tv, it's been universally positively received all around the world. But I fight an enormous battle every single day to build this business, essentially because every piece of business infrastructure, any other tech startup just gets to take for granted. I can't. The small print always says no adult content. And this mm. is all pervasive across every single area of the business in ways that people outside the sphere don't realize. I can't get funded. I can't get banked. It took me four years to find one bank here in America that would allow me to open a business bank account. Yeah, I heard that because there was someone that I knew that had, um, like, they were selling, part of their business was selling sex toys. So they could they could they just couldn't get, like, yeah. just a regular bank account. No, to, um, no it's ridiculous. Because I don't want a massive you know, multi-billion dollar industry it is. Potentially, yeah. But um, but we can't realise the enormous financial potential of our businesses when we are not allowed to grow them the way everybody else does. Every yeah. tech service I need to use to operate my video streaming, video sharing platform, be it hosting, encoding, encrypting, the terms of service always say no adult content. In every single case, I have to go to the people at the top of the company, explain what I'm doing, beg to be allowed to use their service. Sometimes they let me, sometimes they don't. It's a very labour-intensive process. Our biggest operational challenge is payments. 
PayPal won't work with adult content, Stripe can't. We had to build our entire video sharing, video stream platform from scratch ourselves as proprietary technology because existing streaming services off the shelf components will not stream adult content. I'm so jealous of friends who built video startups on top of Vimeo. Quick, easy, simple. I can't do that. Mm. Even something as apparently simple as finding an email partner to send a membership emails out with MailChimp won't work with adult content. Wow. We rejected by six or seven, so we found Sendgrid who would. A couple of years ago, I put a perfectly standard job description for a UX designer up on Upwork. 20 minutes later, they took it down, and they told us we were not allowed to post um, job descriptions on Upwork because of who we are. So I had no idea these businesses were so puritanical. I'm quite shocked by that. Every single thing is a battle, and therefore the biggest thing we have to celebrate at Make Love Not Porn is we're still here. In a world where 70% of all startups fail within the first five years, that gives you some idea of how much the world wants us and how much traction we have, that we are still surviving. But I have to tell you, I fight a battle um, for survival every day. And, and that's why I'm constantly looking for investors who get that, you know, we are a startup with the potential to make a huge amount of money and do a huge amount of social good simultaneously. You're bridging a dangerous gap, aren't you, that needs bridging, so... Oh, yeah, but Make Love Not Porn's mission is to end rape culture. Yeah. yeah. Who wouldn't yeah. want that? But, but my biggest obstacle finding investors is the social dynamic that I call fear of what other people will think. Yeah. Because it is never about what the person I'm talking to thinks. When you understand what we're doing at Make Love Not Porn and why we're doing it, nobody can argue with it. The business case is clear. It's always their fear of what they think other people will think, which operates around sex, unlike any other area. Yeah, which is actually the, um, the, the negative byproduct of social media. So we're social media coaches and um, we're evangelical about the power of social media to help small businesses get out there, get clients, all that kind of thing. But the negative side of it is that um, society is so judgmental, isn't it? You can just say one wrong thing and you're vilified all over instantly, all over everywhere. And you have to backtrack, even if actually you might have worded it wrongly, but have a really valid point or actually just stand by your opinion. Here's why that that happens uh, because that this is um, directly relevant to what I'm doing. The young white male founders of the giant tech platforms that dominate our lives today are not the primary targets online and offline of harassment, abuse, racism, sexual assault, violence, rape, revenge porn. Therefore, they did not and they do not proactively design for the prevention of any of those things. Those of us who are most at risk every single day, women, people of colour, LGBTQ, the disabled, we design safe spaces and safe experiences. I and my team spent literally years concepting and designing Make Love Not Porn before we ever built it, because we knew that if we were going to invite people to do something they'd never done before, socially share their real world sex, we had to think through every possible ramification of that to create a completely safe and trustworthy space. And so I designed Make Love Not Porn around something everybody else should have done, but nobody else did, which is human curation. Our curators watch every single video submitted to Make Love Not Porn from beginning to end before we publish it. 
our curators review every single post on what we call Make Love Not Porn Social, which is the ability on your profile to post text, photographs, art illustration. We review every single post before we publish it. We review every single comment left on every video before we publish it. And that is why we can vouch for every single piece of content on our platform. And we have a platform that celebrates nothing but love, features nothing but love, showcases nothing but love, is all about love. Did you guys read the open letter I wrote to Prince Harry that Fast Company published last week? No. Okay, right. So, so oh, well. after this podcast and to your listeners, um, Google Cindy Gallup, Prince Harry, Fast Company, and you'll mm-hmm. find it. Because uh, Prince Harry, the week before last, um, he wrote very laudably um, an open call to um, the tech industry and companies and advertisers to completely re-envision the digital landscape um, to, 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 you know, to eradicate hate and violence and racism and everything that we are all horrified by and so i wrote an open letter to him in response where where i I made exactly the point i've just made to you which is that this is what happens when you have a white male dominated tech industry where white male vcs only fund white male tech founders only 2.8 percent of all vc funding goes to female founder ventures only 0.02 percent goes to black female founder ventures. Mm -hmm. And yet the world that we design, because we are the ones most at risk in it, is the one that would keep us all safe. That's the answer to social media. Um, So do um, do, um, do take a look at my open letter because I think think you'll like it. Um, so what I would really like to talk to you, have you still got the, your, the same apartment, the black apartment, or did you sell it? Um, yeah, no, no. So, so I sold the black apartment five years ago, oh, and, okay. and now I live in the Sky apartment. Well, actually, I always forget people are listening to this. I just think we're just doing a live and babbling on. But, um, like, do you want to explain what we're talking <laughs> yeah, about, sure. Cindy? Sure. So um, both my old apartment, the black apartment, and by the way, listeners, if you just Google the black apartment, you will see lots of coverage and photos of it. And my current apartment, the Sky Apartment, and for that I recommend you Google the hashtag, the Sky Apartment, because that, that will get you into that down. Um, so with both of these, I pursued my New York real estate philosophy of always go looking for what nobody else wants. Because the only way to afford a nice apartment in New York is to buy a shithole and do it up. And so where the black apartment came from was, you know, back in 2003, I decided it was time to stop pouring rent down a black hole and buy somewhere. And I was living in the New York neighborhood of Chelsea at the time, and I couldn't afford a single thing that was ready to move into. And so I ended up buying 3,800 square feet of completely raw space in the old YMCA building um, Mm -hmm. across from the Chelsea Hotel, big landmark. Um, The the, the YMCA had moved out in 2003. A developer had bought the building and demolished everything and was selling um, uh, um, selling it off as raw space. And I remember clambering over piles of rubble thinking, I can't do this. And then I thought, how the hell else will I ever afford this much space in New York? And so I basically had to build an apartment from the ground up. Um, And incidentally, the fun thing about about the black apartment is that I bought the front half of the sixth floor of the YMCA, which is where they used to have their indoor swimming pool in the back half. And so my apartment was literally the men's locker and shower rooms at the YMCA. So in the UK, they put Woodsuit Keen DIYer. 
and, and I have to say, two and a half years of complete renovation nightmare ensued. But the, the one good thing about um, building your own apartment is that you can make it work exactly the way you want it to. And when I was briefing my designer and architect, um, I thought now's my chance because a few years earlier, I had been in one of my favorite cities in the world, Shanghai, sitting in one of my favorite bars in the world. It's sadly, it's now closed, doesn't exist anymore, but, but it was called the Glamour Bar, drinking my favorite cocktail in the world, a martini. And the Glamour Bar was beautifully lit and beautifully designed. And I remember sitting there on my second martini, three sheets of the wind, looking around me in a drunken haze going, I wish I lived somewhere like this. And so <laughs> I said to my designer, okay, here's the brief. Um, here's the overall brief of this apartment. When night falls, I want to feel like I'm in a bar in Shanghai. And they went, we can do that. And so they went away and they researched bars and lounges in Shanghai and they came back and they said, okay, here's our vision. Floor, ceiling, walls, all black. And I went, ah! And they said, no, 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 no. It's large enough and light enough to take it. We will paint it gloss black so the light reflects off the surfaces so it's not oppressive. And it'll make all your art and belongings really pop. And it totally did because people would visit me who had no idea I lived in an all black apartment till I told them because it made everything look so colorful. Now, um, I bought and built the black apartment in my past life as a high flying, highly paid ad executive. Now I am a bootstrapping entrepreneur. Um, you know, to, um, I basically decided I could do without the mortgage, you know, and the real estate taxes and all of that. And so um, I sold the black apartment um, back in um, 2005, uh, sorry, 2015. And and then, and, and then the game plan was downsize, you know, next apartment, all cash, no mortgage. And so once again, I pursued my philosophy of always go looking for what nobody else wants. Yeah. So I rate um, the big real estate website here in, in the US, Street Easy. And I found the listing for my current apartment. Um, and it spoke to me for two reasons that would have had everybody else running 50 miles in the opposite direction. And by the way, they had. It had been on market for eight months. No one had bought it. Reason number one. Zero photographs of the apartment on the listing. Mm -hmm. I went, great, it's a shithole. Okay. Clearly mm -hmm. so bad, they couldn't even cheat a tiny corner to, you know, photographically. Born out by point number two, the copy said, bring your vision and your opportunity. <laughs> I went, great, total shithole. So, so I called my, my real estate broker, I went, I want to go and see this one. So he calls the other broker, makes an appointment, comes back, says, okay, Cindy, we're going to go on this day at this time. Then he said to me, Oh, and by the way, just so you know, the other broker said to me, I hope your client has a lot of imagination. <laughs> so he goes, he's got nothing but, but I'm going loving these vibes. This listing was talking my language before I'd even seen it. So on the appointed day, we turn up at this building on Fifth Avenue at 39th Street. Very nondescript from the outside, very tall, no idea what we can find. Meet the other broker in the lobby, and she says to us, before we go up, let me just prepare you. So she says this building was built 30 years ago. The developer who built it built um, on the roof, side by side, two penthouses. They're triplexes, three floors each, penthouse A, penthouse B. She said, we're going to go and see penthouse A. And penthouse A is lived in by a hoarder. And Antonio went, ka-ching, jackpot. And she said, let me tell you, it was way worse when we first saw it. At least he's now cleared parts of the stuff. You can vaguely see inside the rooms. And I'm just thinking, halle bloody Louia. Yeah. It's a bizarre phenomenon, isn't it? Bargain, bargain, bargain. You know. So the broker is very startled by the fact that I'm completely unfazed at hearing this. As we go up in the elevator, she says to me, people with vision come here. 
they lose their vision instantly. So you saw <laughs> how bad it was by the fact she was underselling every single front door. So I walked into um, this apartment, which looked nothing like what you see behind me, by the way, um, and it was jam-packed full of stuff, piled high, couldn't see a thing. Also, it had not been touched in 30 years since it was built. There were holes in the walls, the windows were covered in crap, but behind it... I saw spectacular views, um, tons of light, um, two, um, two walls of floor-to-ceiling glass, three terraces, tons of outdoor space, and I went, this is my apartment. Um, took forever to negotiate, get the guy out, but because everybody else ran screaming, it was a total bargain for Manhattan, but it then required a full-on gut renovation of everything. And so that was another two, two and a half years of nightmare. Um, yeah. But um, I have to say, I'm so relieved that we completed the renovation um, last fall. Um, and hallelujah, you know, I've been in full lockdown for the past five months. And at least I'm lucky enough to be in lockdown in a lovely apartment with light and views and outdoor space, which prevents yeah. me going stir, stir crazy. Thank God I wasn't mid-renovation when lockdown, yeah. because that would have been a total nightmare. So, yeah, that, that, yeah. That, that, this is the Sky apartment. And the bit you haven't told us about, about the black apartment, is that the notorious B.I.G. filmed one of his videos there, didn't he? So it wasn't actually him because he was dead by then. Um, but um, so, um, so P. Diddy and Usher and Farrell um, basically filmed uh, the music video for um, Nasty Gal off the Biggie Duets album. And, and that was because um, the location hunter looked at another apartment in the building, which wasn't right, but then they told them about the black apartment and so um th and that was how um the black apartment came to be the backdrop for that for that video and that adds a lot of a uh, lot of uh, money onto the the value of a property doesn't it <laughs> you can say well, 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 i have to say you know and, and actually i do want to say this to your listeners so you know my um uh, my my uh, father's english my mother's chinese my mother has always had a very, um, and, and this is actually classic Chinese, in fact, it's classic, classic Asian approach to the best investments are ones you can touch, bricks and mortar, real estate. Mm. And so I and my sisters um, were always encouraged to buy our first apartment as soon as we possibly could. You know, I bought my first flat in London in 1987 in Peckham Rye, for the princely sum of £41,500. <laughs> wow. Wonder what that's worth now. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, well, well, in fact, I was astonished because, you know, I bought in Peckham because I couldn't afford anything else. You know, I, hadn't, I, didn't, even, I didn't even know about Peckham Rye. By the way, it was lovely. It was a one-bedroom flat facing the common. I had a, had a view of, like, grass and trees. And I was staggered a couple of years ago to see a piece in the Evening Standard that had Peckham as, like, the number one coolest place to live in London. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, isn't it? But, 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 but the point being that, um, you know, whatever you can do to buy your first apartment, get on the property ladder, um, that is the way to absolutely making money and, and wealth creation. And I know it's even further away for so many people now, distressingly, than ever before. Um, but if you can stretch yourself and, and get on the property ladder in some form or other, um, that, that has stood me and my sisters in very good stead. Again, my philosophy of looking for what nobody else wanted. I mean, back in 1907, no one wanted to live in Peckham. You know? yeah. and, and so I've always made money on all of my apartments. Um, you know, buying raw space and building apartment, um, you absolutely make money on that. You know, buying, you know, a shithole lived in by a hoarder, 
and and renovating it you absolutely make money on that but what we do is we take a nice house and then we try and do a few bits to it so we like knock you know probably a quarter off the value never get around to finishing it and live in the shithole so kind of the opposite of what you're suggesting but now because i've been on holiday last week i've uh, you know you come back you're invigorated so i'm like right we're getting on with this house now we're going to do it i'm not living like this anymore so um yeah new a new anita has come home tell us more about your other business as well so if we ran the world um you know what is the idea behind it and where did that come from because that's another very different thing isn't it um, so, so If We Ran the World was my first startup because I was working on If We Ran the World when Make Love Not Porn blew up. Um, and I had to back burner If We Ran the World because even I, superhuman as I am, cannot run two startups simultaneously. But I absolutely want to, as and when I can get Make Love Not Porn funded and get a full-time team running it, I want to go back and reactivate If We Ran the World because the world has caught up with, with what If Ran the World is all about. So If Ran the World came out of my belief that the future of business is doing good and making money simultaneously. And not in the old world order way that most businesses currently do that, which goes, we make money here, and then we do good by writing checks to cause us to clear our conscience over here. Yeah. But the new world order way of we make money because we do good. We find a way to integrate social responsibility into the way that we do business on a day-to-day basis that therefore makes it a key driver of future growth and profitability. And so, you know, because I want to live in a world where the more money you make, the more good you do, the more good you do, the more money you make. You know? yeah. So I believe the business model of the future is shared values plus shared action equals shared profit, financial profit and social profit. In other words, when brands and businesses come together with their audiences, and by audience, I, I mean consumers, employees, stakeholders, analysts, When you come together with your audiences around shared values, which, by the way, is the most important requirement for a good relationship in life as much as business, you will never truly bond with someone if you don't share the same values. So when you come together around values you all share, and when you are then enabled to collectively and collaboratively to co-act on those values, to walk the talk together, you can then make things happen in the real world that will benefit consumers, benefit society, and benefit the brand and its business. And so if we ran the world is co-action software that enables businesses to integrate that business model. And although I had to back burn it if we ran the world, I actually designed Make Love Not Porn around precisely that business model. Yeah. Shared values plus shared action equals shared profit. And incidentally, um, so if we ran the world was just 12 months old in beta, when Harvard Business School reached out to us and said, this is such an innovative model, we want to teach it and write it up as a case study. And so I had this very surreal experience of going to Harvard, sitting in the back of a lecture theater while a professor taught my starter to the MBA students. And and if around the world exists as a Harvard Business School case study. And so I hear all the time from business students around the world who go, oh my God, we love this. And, 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 you know, obviously, as I say, the world has caught up with the idea of doing good and making money simultaneously. And so yeah. if I can find investors and, and brand partners if around the world, I absolutely want to reactivate that one of these days. Yeah, we had a business coach and her motto was kind of reciprocity. Um, and it's a similar kind of thing, doesn't it? If you go out with that attitude, it might not come back to you from whoever you helped, but it does, you know, it's, it comes good, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it's like um, with what we do, we give loads of free stuff away, don't we? Need people could knock around our world and not pay us anything and get a lot further faster in their business. Um, you don't want to take that too far because you want them to pay you. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. Yeah, don't get me wrong. We choose our free. We decide our free. But th- th- you know, people can be. You know, they can. Especially if people say, "Oh, they can't afford it," or they're new to us, mm. or whatever. They can just consume all. Like this podcast is completely free. That's what I love about the world right now. There's so many resources that you can get your hands on for free to to get you going mm. until you want to pay mm. to that next level. And that's what we say. Hang around us. Take the free stuff until you're at a level where you can take that next level and obviously pay us as well Ooh. so you're right you you want it because we you sound like how we sound to our clients because we're constantly saying to our clients aren't, aren't we put your prices up because Anna, people value you at the value you are seen to put on yourself yeah exactly but i think what's impressive is if we're around the world it's one of those you know conversations you probably have with someone over a glass of wine i think wouldn't it be good if this was around but to then actually develop it and create it and launch it and you know all of that is pretty impressive so what are your big goals moving forward then two things first of all um absolutely um, scaling Make Love Not Porn um, to achieve our mission of ending rape culture because we are socializing sex, making it easier for everybody in the world to talk about openly and honestly to promote consent, communication, good sexual values and good sexual behavior. But until I raise um, the funding I need to scale, um, I'm not able to pay myself a living wage out of Make Love Not Porn. And so Mm -hmm. I support myself alongside um, Make Love Not Porn as a consultant and speaker. Um, I'll I'll tell you about my overall approach to consulting and then my specific focus right now, which I'm very keen for your listeners to hear about as well. So I, I consult very selectively only for clients and brands who want to change the game in their particular sector. So you come to me for radical, innovative, groundbreaking, transformative. I don't do status quo. Mm. And so I like to sum up my consultancy approach as I like to blow shit up. I am the Michael Bay of business. At the moment, what I'm finding clients coming to me for is something that um, um, I'm very keen that everybody understands. And, And by the way, you can hire me to do this. I consult and I speak on how to end racism in the corporate world. And I have a very specific approach to this because I am not the unconscious bias trainer. I am not the diversity inclusion coach. Hmm. I am a hard-headed business strategist. And so what I do is I advise companies on how to re-engineer their day-to-day working operations and processes to integrate diversity inclusion in a way that then makes diversity inclusion absolutely a driver of growth, profitability and successful business outcomes. So two questions we always ask everybody. um, And the first one is, what uh, book can you recommend? So um, listeners can win this book as well. So we will find it and send it to them. I recommend the book that my friend Thomas Hamoro Primozik wrote after his original Harvard Business Review article became the most read Harvard Business Review article of all time called why do so many incompetent men become leaders? And so Tomas turned into a book. The book is also called Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and What We Can Do About It. I blurb that book um, and you will see me say on the jacket, this is the single most important business and leadership book of our time, which it is. And so that is the book I recommend. And, and by the way, I think it's important to say to the men listening to this podcast, um, the lack of obstacles for incompetent men impacts you as much as it does women. Because there is nothing more demotivating 
when you are slogging your guts out for your business to see all around you examples of utter male incompetence being promoted, getting the positions you wanted, you know, getting the salary you deserved, you know, the lack of obstacles for incompetent men hurts competent men as much as it hurts competent women. This is a a very important read for everybody, and that's my book. There's a Japanese term for it, isn't it, to promote somebody out of their area of competency, and I can't remember what it is, um, but, yeah, there's an actual term, because what you do when somebody's good at their job, you promote them, and what you probably do or often do is boot like footballers who are good at football they promote them to be managers they're not necessarily good managers actually um t- in in the case of um Tomaso's thesis um in a male dominated world confidence gets promoted over competence it's really interesting that, that a man wrote that as well um that i do find that really uh, so and, and, and in fact um, i would just point you and your listeners to and so Tomas and i um earlier this year co-wrote a Harvard Business Review article, which is called Seven Leadership Lessons Men Can Learn From Women. So I recommend that to everybody listening as well. Another question that we ask is, because um, we're the Get Savvy Club, is we ask all our um, guests on the podcast, what makes you savvy? That's very easy. What makes me savvy is 60 years of life. I'm 60 years old. I tell people how old I am as often as possible. I shout my age from the rooftops because... I am out to combat and change the appalling ageism that operates in the business world. And I am brilliant at what I do because I've spent 60 years doing it. Every business should be falling over itself to hire older people, or or as I like to call us, experts. Yeah. Because when you are my age, any age that is over 40 and beyond, we are extraordinarily time and cost efficient for businesses because we get shit done a damn sight faster again because of our experience and expertise and so and confidence i think uh, absolutely and so and so what makes me savvy is being 60 years old and and by the way i created the hashtag say your age i encourage everybody to say their age because my philosophy is the complete opposite of, of of what a lot of people say to they think challenge ageism Um, You know, you will hear people say, oh, age is just a number. No, it's not. Your age is a very special number because your age is the sum total of you. Your age is the encapsulation of all of your lived experience, all, all of the things you've learned throughout your life. You know, your age is what makes you valuable. We interviewed each other for the first couple of episodes. And uh, when Anna asked me what makes me savvy, I said exactly the same thing, my age. I was thinking as well, Anita, you also had a midlife crisis. <laughs> so, I was 39, though, slightly younger. Quit everything and just uh, started again, which is really interesting. You, you are so right. And it's so interesting you said it because it was my birthday on Monday. And uh, I did a live, a Facebook live. And somebody on the live said, how old are you? And I, I thought asking me that and I didn't like um I just thought I'm not I'm not answering it and I just ignored it but do you know what it's you know it's because and I've never really thought about it that before because I never celebrated my 40th birthday so I have this in my head like everyone will just think I'm late 30s like forever but what you've said really does make sense so maybe I should just own it the next time somebody asks you that just tell them yeah okay start now we did sound the podcast the other day because we had somebody say to us um 
Like they feel that they're the wrong side of 40 to be doing social media. And we were like, no, no. what's wrong with you? Like, no, that's not God. a thing. Tell them I'm yeah. 60. But that's our mission now is to, to help, you know, women of a certain age who think like that to say you can get out there on social media, promote your business. And also, guys, it's so important because um, so... Um, you know, after I left BBH, um, I, you know, I began working for myself as a consultant and I worked for several years on retainer to the Japanese ad agency Hakahodo. And so I went to Tokyo a lot and I was in Tokyo for a week working with my Japanese colleagues. And one night we all went out to a sushi restaurant and got tanked on sake. And in the course of the conversation, one of the Japanese women um, revealed mm. that in her youth, she had been apprenticed to a Japanese fortune teller. And it was for a short space of time, like six months. So he taught her to read palms, but she could only read them in a very limited way. You know, she could tell your love life, your health, something. And so we're all drunk on sake. We all went, read me, read me. (laughs) And so she read my palm and her English wasn't very good, which is part of the charm of what she said, because, you know, at the time I would have been 40, 47, 48. And she looked at my palm and she said to me, you are only halfway. And I love that because that was exactly how I felt. You know, I'm only halfway. I mean, you know, I'm 60. You know, I was thinking this the other day. You know, if I live, again, fingers crossed, to be 90, that's 30 more years. Yeah. You know, that's a whole ton of time to do all sorts of things. And so do say to women, you know, I mean, when you're 40, 45, 50, you've got as much of your life to live again. And you've got so much opportunity to do Mm. such amazing things with it. I was trying to say this to my brother because um, my, my brother's recently gone into rehab and he's been sober now for like 18 months and he's just turned four, 40 like last um, like uh, earlier this year. And he's he keeps going on about how he feels like that, you know, he's let everyone down, he's wasted his life and stuff. And I point that exact time. You've got the same amount of time yeah. again. Yeah, and exactly. Some now. You've got like, a long life to live again. It's fantastic. Yeah, you can just get started yeah. with this whole yeah. fresh sober you that's you know going to be completely you can do be have whatever you want to do but he needs to do work a bit more on that but yeah it's like you know you're 40 only 40 like there's so much more that you can be doing and accomplish um excellent well thank you so much for being on the podcast i'm gonna wrap it up now because we want to be um respectful of people's time when we contact them and be like if we say it's going to be like 45 minutes from now that's all it's going to be um have you got anything else that you would like to add or any any anything else um, you, you know i'll just say to your listeners um you can follow me on twitter at cindy gallop and at make love not porn um on facebook i'm cindy.gallop and i'll make love not porn facebook page as mlnp tv I'm on Instagram at Cindy Gallup at Make Love Not Porn, and do follow me on LinkedIn as well. Oh, I saw your dessert the other day. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I screenshotted it and I sent it to Anita. I went, oh, look. Oh, but, oh I said, God. we'll get on just fine. Can, can I just tell you, the Bon Appetit peanut butter and jelly ice cream pie is to die for. Um, everybody, you can find the recipe on my LinkedIn profile and my social media generally. And do you know, Anna, I made that the day before. I left it in the fridge overnight. I tried it yesterday. I've re- I ate half of it yesterday all on my own because that's how delicious it is. If you're enjoying Marketing Made Easy, the podcast from Get Savvy Club, use your podcast app to rate, review and subscribe. That was an amazing interview. Really interesting. Um, interesting woman. You know how I always have this theory that um, certain people I could be friends with, like uh, Claudia Winkleman, Sarah Cox. I think I'd enjoy having a drink with her and I could probably be friends with them. What I liked about her is that she's obviously really dynamic and got you know great vision but actually to turn around and make these things happen is another story isn't it um so yeah quite influential and uh, impressive really good so don't forget to um 
subscribe to our podcast and rate and review it. If you want to be in with a chance of winning the book that she talked about, which sounds interesting, then um, screenshot the episode and put it on any social media platform um, and tag us into it so we can see that you've done it. And don't forget um, to look out for the next Get Savvy Quickie that will be coming later in the week as well. The best way to share the, is screenshot it and then tag us in Instagram, like at Get Savvy Club. But you can find in the show notes here all the different ways of connecting with us, I'm sure. Do you know, we say, right, okay, let's, um, Anna can do the intro and then I'll do the outro. And uh, But you can't help yourself, can you? You have to just, oh, by the way. <laughs> Actually, I think we should just jointly do it. One kind of takes the lead oh, yeah. and one kind of doesn't. Yeah, okay. <laughs> See you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. That was Marketing Made Easy, the podcast from Get Savvy Club. If you enjoyed it, join our Facebook group. Just search Get Savvy Club. Get Savvy Club.